Well, hey, everybody, thanks for listening in to this week's teaching. If you have a Bible nearby or a Bible on your phone, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter uh, 3. Let me first say, if you are listening to a teaching of ours for the very first time, uh, thanks so much. We're, we're glad that you found us, however that came about. Uh, just to catch you up, we are walking straight through a book of the Bible called 1 Peter. And one of the things that happens when you teach straight through a book of the Bible, like we're doing right now, is that you come across some passages and you have to teach on some passages that you might not would opt to teach on if it were entirely up to you. And the passage that we're going to cover today is certainly one of those times. Uh, the passage that we're going to cover covers a lot of topics very quickly. And some of those things are, are quite odd or at least unfamiliar to us in our society today. So all of that to say, today's teaching is probably going to feel the slightest bit technical in some ways. There will probably be a moment or two where you will sort of feel like you're in a seminary class as you listen to this teaching. But let me make you a couple of promises as we do that. One, I will do my best to keep the technical portions of today's teaching as brief as I possibly can. And two, I will promise you that by the end, there will be some practical implications for us, specifically in how we think about baptism and how we approach our relationship with Jesus in general. So relevance is coming. It might just take us a few minutes to get there. So let's read through the entire passage beginning to end, and then we'll sort of go back and pick apart some of the more difficult portions of it. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So I'll just assume that everybody's crystal clear on what all of that means, right? I mean, just to recap, in four short verses of the Bible, we have now covered Jesus's crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, him preaching to some type of imprisoned spirits somewhere, the story of Noah's Ark, baptism, Jesus's ascension, and then he just peppers in a little bit about angels, just in case you weren't confused enough already. So if you're not careful, it would be easy to read this passage kind of like Peter is the random conspiracy theorist uncle at your annual family Thanksgiving dinner. You know, the one that just brings up random things that he thinks are connected but absolutely aren't. Like you go, uh, how you doing, Uncle Randy? How, how's, your, uh, how's your year going? And he says, well, I'm good. I'm real good. Other than the fact that Bill Gates is obviously the Antichrist and he's summoning the aliens to invade us next week, which is obviously why I drink strictly filtered prune juice. And you're like, cool, those are three things that have absolutely nothing to do with each other and certainly don't have anything to do with what any of us were talking about at this Thanksgiving dinner before you brought it up. 
And if you read this passage at sort of a surface level without doing any digging at all, it's easy to get that sort of vibe from it. It it makes you ask the questions, one, what in the world is Peter talking about here? And two, what in the world do any of these things have to do with each other? Because they kind of seem unrelated on the surface. But if it helps, you are not alone in being confused by this passage. Talking about this text in the Bible specifically, Martin Luther, the great Reformation theologian, once said this, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage than any other anywhere in the Bible. Therefore, I do not know for a certainty what Peter means at all. And at least on that point, I think most of us are in 100% agreement with Martin Luther. A lot of smart people have actually written and commented on this passage. And spoiler alert, none of them are 100% certain about what Peter is referencing here. Most of them simply present two or three different good options and say, I don't know, maybe one of these. And in a way, I think all of that should be strangely comforting for those of us who are regularly trying to read and study the scriptures. I think it's important to remember that studying the scriptures sometimes feels more like a journey than it does a destination. Because even smarter people than you and I, with more degrees in the Bible than you and I have, they themselves are not 100% locked in on what every passage in the Bible actually means. So, for our purposes today in this teaching, here's the deal. I don't think I'm going to settle anything for us this morning that all of those other people who are smarter than I am could not settle. So what I'm going to do is just spend a few minutes here in a bit telling you which explanation of this passage makes the most sense to me personally. And then for the majority of our time together, we're just going to talk about how knowing the exact events that Peter refers to here actually doesn't have that much of an impact on the overall point that he is making in this passage and in this letter as a whole. So on that note, let's just remind ourselves once again of the overall point that Peter is making in this letter to these early Christians. As a refresher, this letter that we call 1 Peter was written to early followers of Jesus living under the nose of the Roman Empire. And in the letter, Peter's goal is to help them figure out how to live in a somewhat hostile environment, how they should respond when people mistreat them and malign them and exclude them. Because Peter's take is that by them responding well to those types of adverse scenarios, these followers of Jesus actually have the ability to point even the people who mistreat them to the way of Jesus. So the last three weeks, we have heard Peter talk about how to do that in the context of various societal structures and relationships. That's what he's been unpacking for us these past few weeks. And today, he's going to recap the motivation behind why we should respond that way when we are mistreated. Why should we respond with blessing when people mistreat us? That's where we pick it up in verse 18. So let's take a look at that verse. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So stop right there for just a second. Here again, Peter reminds us that the reason we should respond to evil with blessing is because that's precisely what Jesus did for us, for you and I. 
He, the righteous, suffered for us, the unrighteous. And it was him doing that that made a relationship with God possible in the first place. His suffering, Jesus' suffering, his mistreatment, it, it bridged this relational gap between us and God that could not have been remedied otherwise. And now, as followers of Jesus, we are now called, filled with his spirit, to follow in Jesus' footsteps in that regard. Though, though we may be acting righteously in certain scenarios in life, we may still suffer at the hands of others because others are unrighteous in how they treat us. And in those moments, Peter says, we have an opportunity to point people to Jesus in how we respond to that mistreatment. We will sometimes have the opportunity to endure mistreatment so that others might be brought to God as well. That's our role as followers of Jesus. So far, I think that's all pretty followable, at least for most of us, especially if you've been listening in the past few weeks. I think that's all pretty followable in what it's saying. But what comes next in the passage is obviously a little bit tougher to follow. So let's read verse 18 once again, and this time we'll continue on into verse 19 and 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, so let's take a crack at this. Uh, just to streamline things a little bit and sort of break down what it's saying here, I think it may help to break things down into three questions. The main questions we need to answer about what Peter just said, I think, are one, when did Jesus preach? Two, who did Jesus preach to? And three, what did Jesus preach? When did Jesus preach? Who did Jesus preach to? And what did Jesus preach? So here comes the technical portion of the teaching. If this is not your cup of tea, just bear with us. Relevance is coming here in just a bit. First up, when did Jesus preach? When is Peter saying that Jesus went and did this exactly? This part, to me at least, is pretty clear in the passage because it says that this all happened, quote, once Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's a pretty clear timeline to me. It seems like whatever it is that's happening in this passage, it is happening right around the time of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. I personally lean towards the time of his ascension into heaven specifically, but I won't get into all of that today. I think that is when Jesus preached, sometime around Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Next question, who did Jesus preach to? Who did Jesus preach to? This, I think, is where it gets a little bit hazier in terms of interpreting what he's saying. So it could be that Jesus preached to some group of deceased human beings who disobeyed God at the time of Noah and the flood. That's probably the safest assumption about what he's saying here. But also, we have some evidence from the Bible and sources around the time of the Bible that the phrase spirits in prison could refer to the idea of fallen angels. So the consensus is that when Satan rebelled and became Satan, there were also a group of angels that rebelled with him, and they became opposed to God and his purposes. So this might be referencing them, actually. 
Anywho, next question, what did Jesus preach? Whoever these people were, what was the message? What was the content of the message that Jesus preached to them? So this is a little bit tricky. When you and I think of preaching or proclaiming something, we generally think of someone doing something like what I'm doing right now. So unpacking the good news of Jesus for people in hopes that they'll respond to it in repentance for the first time or the fifth time or the hundredth time or whatever it is. That's generally what you and I think the word preaching or proclaiming means. And this passage could mean that. It it could mean that somehow Jesus went and sort of gave like a second chance to repent to these people or spirits for them to respond to the gospel and be saved. But while that's possible, that would certainly be at odds with a lot of other places in the Bible that talk about how there's only one chance to repent and respond to the gospel, and that's while you're alive. So if in this passage Jesus is offering these imprisoned spirits a second chance to respond to the gospel, Jesus would have some splaining to do biblically. So I think it's more likely and more correct to think that What Jesus is proclaiming to these spirits here is simply a message of victory and triumph over evil. A message of victory and triumph over evil. So I don't think he's giving them a a second chance to repent. I think he's proclaiming to them that through his resurrection, he has once and for all defeated the powers of Satan, sin, death, and darkness in our world. And that their days as a result are now numbered. So his message isn't invitational in nature, it's triumphal. He's declaring victory over them. And that would make a little more sense since we do have evidence of that happening other places in the New Testament. So that is my best attempt at unpacking what Peter might be referencing in this passage. Again, that is just my take on all of it. Plenty of smart people read it differently than that. And you are, of course, welcome to read it differently than that as well. Because on the spectrum from essential issues of doctrine that we all need to agree on to non-essential issues that we can disagree with each other on and debate on, I would say this is very much in the non-essential issues category. And that's because Peter's point in all of this is simply to draw out a comparison of sorts. He's trying to say that just like the early Christians he writes to were persecuted and maligned, Jesus was also persecuted and maligned. Just like Peter's audience that he writes to was mistreated, so was Jesus mistreated. And just like all of that was not the end of the story for Jesus, it also won't be the end of the story for followers of Jesus that Peter writes to. Peter is trying to help these Christians see that the way they are treated currently is not the end of their story. It is not where their story ends. That that one day all of this will be over and they will be victorious just like Jesus. That just like Jesus was eventually vindicated even though he was mistreated, Peter's audience will be vindicated too. And that that reality should bring them tangible types of hope in their everyday life. And most likely, that is also why Peter brings in the story of Noah. There are also quite a few similarities between the situation of Peter's audience and the story of Noah. Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by unbelievers who were hostile to them. Peter's audience is too. Noah was a righteous presence in the midst of unrighteousness, and Peter's audience is called to be that as well. 
Noah trusted God by doing what God told him to do, even when it wasn't easy. And Peter is calling his audience to do that as well. And finally, Noah and his family were ultimately saved from the judgment of God. And Peter encourages his audience that they will ultimately be saved from the judgment of God too. So it seems like part of what Peter is trying to do is to show his audience that they were not alone. He connects their story to both Jesus and Noah's story and says, just like both of them came out of their situations ultimately victorious, you will too. He says to his audience, you will come out victorious eventually as well. And then he connects all of that to the idea of baptism. Does anybody have just a little bit of like Bible whiplash right now from the number of different things that we've covered? Take a look with me back in verse 21. It says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, meaning it corresponds to Noah being saved through the ark, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, it's important for us to get that when Peter says that baptism, quote, saves us, he doesn't mean the physical act itself saves us. He actually tries to clarify that in two different ways in this very passage. First, he says that baptism saves you, quote, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it's not the physical act that does the saving. And second, he then clarifies that baptism saves you, quote, through the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, it's not actually going under the water and coming back up that saves you. It's Jesus's resurrection that saves you. Just like it wasn't ultimately the ark that saved Noah and his family, it was God that saved them. So contrary to what some church traditions teach, being baptized is not actually what makes you a Christian. It's, it's not what saves you per se. Rather, we might say that baptism is a symbol of what saves you. But I want you to hear me say that's not to trivialize baptism, not at all. Though baptism is a symbol, it's a very necessary symbol. So think about it like something like a wedding ring. So I wear a wedding ring on my finger as a way of communicating that I am married. Now, that doesn't mean that the wedding ring itself makes me married, right? So if I was single and I went to a jewelry store and I bought a wedding ring and I put it on my finger, that wouldn't make anything true of me that wasn't true of me before I put the ring on, right? Because a wedding ring is not what makes you married. It doesn't make anything true of you that wasn't true already. And and in the same way, getting baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Getting baptized doesn't make anything true of you that wasn't true of you before you got baptized, But at the same time, if I'm married and I just outright refuse to wear a wedding ring or or to participate in any other type of public demonstration that I am married, you would probably conclude that there was something very wrong with me and or my marriage, right? So if I refuse to ever acknowledge that I was married, you, you would cast doubt on the validity or at least on the health of my marriage relationship. Because while a wedding ring is a symbol, it's a very important symbol. It's a public demonstration of something that is true. Well, in a similar way, baptism may just be a symbol, but it's a very necessary symbol. 
If we say we follow Jesus, but we see no reason to participate in the main symbol that the Bible lays out for publicly acknowledging that we follow Jesus, well, then something is likely off in our relationship to Jesus. And as Peter says in the passage, baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's a way of publicly acknowledging my life now belongs to Jesus. I have died to who I once was, and now the, the me that is alive now is a completely different person. And my life is now completely submitted to who Jesus is and what he's called me to. So hopefully at some point in the future, when we can all finally get together in person for a Sunday gathering, the plan is that we are going to have quite a few people from our church family get baptized on that Sunday. And before they get baptized, you're going to get to hear them tell their story. You're going to get to hear them talk about how once upon a time they were far from God. They had no interest in God. They had no love for God. But then they're going to tell you one way or another that they heard about Jesus. They got to know Jesus and how as a result of all of that, they began to turn from their sin and instead to follow Jesus. And they're going to each say in their own words, the old me is dead and the new me is now alive. That's what baptism was meant to communicate. And then what you will witness is them going under the water and coming back out as a way of demonstrating that reality publicly. And if you were around last year for Easter, you know that we made a huge deal out of that because baptism is an absolutely beautiful thing. So I want us to stop for a second and sort of pause and reflect on a couple of questions surrounding all of this. And the first one might be the easiest pause and reflect question that we've had so far in these teachings. It's very simple. Yes or no question. Have I been baptized since beginning to follow Jesus? Have I been baptized since beginning to follow Jesus? I told you, super easy question. That's the question I want you to consider first. I know a lot of you have been baptized since beginning to follow Jesus. Others of you are getting baptized with us at some time in the very near future, hopefully. Uh, others of you still would probably say that you were baptized as a baby or as a small child. And while that's valuable, and I'm so glad your family thought to do that, the, the reality is that you probably weren't actively following Jesus as a baby, at, at least unless you were just way more self-aware as a baby than I was. So we would encourage you, if that's your story, we would encourage you now that you have begun to follow Jesus to get baptized now as a symbol of submitting your entire life to Jesus, as a way of proclaiming the old me is dead and the new me is now alive. If you haven't been baptized and are realizing now that maybe you should at some point in the near future, you can actually use this time to head over to citychurchnox.com slash baptism and get signed up. Maybe your baptism can be a part of that big celebration when we all get back together in person. But that's the first question. Have I been baptized since beginning to follow Jesus? So take a quick second, pause this teaching and reflect on that question and respond however you need to respond. Now, if your answer to that first question is, yes, I have been baptized since beginning to follow Jesus, I've got another question that I want you to reflect on. And that question is this, does my life reflect what baptism portrays? Does my life reflect 
what baptism portrays. As we mentioned just a moment ago, baptism is meant to communicate that the old me is dead and the new me is still alive. That's why in baptism, your entire body goes down under the water and your entire body comes back out because you're saying all of me now belongs to Jesus. All of me is now made new. So the question is, does your life reflect that reality? There's this story from back in the 12th century about the Knights Templar, who, who sort of considered themselves to be some sort of Christian military during the Crusades. And the story is about how when these knights were baptized, they would actually hold their swords up out of the water when they went under for baptism. It was sort of this symbolic way of saying, God, you can have all of me except for my inclination towards violence and war. Baptize all of me except for that. So they would hold their swords up out of the water when they got baptized. Now, to us, that probably seems like such a ridiculous, like obviously wrong thing to do and wrong way to go about it. But I'll say this about the Knights Templar. At least they were honest about what they were doing. At least they were acknowledging the hypocrisy in all of it. Some of us are not quite that honest in regards to our relationship with Jesus. Some of us today are actually operating under very similar premises as the Knights Templar. We're saying stuff like, God, you can have all of me except for my anger and bitterness. God, you can have all of me except how I go about my relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend. God, you can have all of me except for how I spend my money. God, you can have all of me except for my sort of dreams and career goals. I mean, you fill in the blank, but I bet if we had honest baptisms like the Knights Templar did, some of us would be holding some things up out of the water as well. So those of you that have been baptized, who, who claim to be followers of Jesus, I, I want you to ask yourself the question, does my life reflect what baptism portrays? If you were honest about it, would, would there be anything that you would be holding up outside of the water? What is it that you have yet to submit to the good and loving authority of Jesus in your life? Take a second, pause the teaching, and reflect on that question. Okay, with all of that unpacked and considered, hopefully, I just want to conclude by reflecting on these words from Jesus found in Matthew 16, verse 25. Take a look at this. It says this, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So this is a call here to submit the entirety of our life to Jesus. But listen, it's not just a command, it's also a promise. It's a two-sided promise. Jesus says anyone who wants to save their life will lose it. That's the first promise, meaning if, if you try to cling to any number of things in your life that make your life what it is, if you try to hold them outside the reach of Jesus, Jesus says you will eventually lose your life. And here's why, because those things won't provide you with life. They can't offer that to you. So if you're clinging to something other than Jesus for life and vitality and joy and fulfillment, Jesus says you will eventually, one way or another, lose your life. If all you care to do is save it, if all you care to do is cling on to things like that, you will eventually lose them. But, Jesus says, for anyone willing to lose their life, they will save it. 
For anyone willing to submit even the best things in their life to the good reign of Jesus the King, what you will find as a result is not less life, but rather true life. Do not ever buy the lie that Jesus is only trying to take things from you. That's not true. Don't buy the lie that he only ever wants you to give things up. He a lot of times does want you to give things up, but he always wants to give you something better. The question is, are you willing to follow him into that? Are you willing to lose your life so that you can save it? This passage in 1 Peter actually ends by saying that this Jesus that the passage is all about is now in heaven and is at the right hand of God with all angels and authorities and powers subjected to him. Believe it or not, accept it or not, Jesus is Lord. He does have all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. The only question is, will you live your life under the reality of that authority? Or will you set yourself against it? That's the question at hand. It's been said before that lots of people want Jesus as their Savior, but not as their Lord. Lots of people want Jesus as their Savior, but not as their Lord. I found that to be so true in my interactions with people. I found that to be so true in my own life sometimes. We want Jesus available to save us from our sins, but we don't want him to show us how to live in freedom from that sin. We want him to rescue us when we found ourselves in a scenario where we need rescuing, but we don't want to let him teach us when we need to be taught. The problem is that Jesus doesn't let us pick and choose which he is whether we want him to be Savior or Lord. He doesn't give us that option. If you don't want Jesus as your Lord, you actually don't want him as your Savior either. But if you're willing to let him be Lord, you'll find that he's quite the Savior as well. Jesus went to the cross. He died a brutal death and came back from the dead in order to save you. His death is entirely and completely sufficient to do that. And I hope that if you haven't, you will respond to that reality today. But listen, he he didn't just save you to leave you the same. He didn't just save you to, to leave you unchanged. He died to transform you, to form you more and more into who he made you to be all along. And for that, Jesus needs to be not just your savior, but also your Lord. So the question for all of us is, do we want that? Are we ready to receive that? Are we ready to interact with Jesus based on who he truly is and not just part of who he is? So we'll land things there for today. Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you are both Savior and Lord. God, that um, you not only want to get us out of a bind, but God, that you also want to teach us how to live in the fullness of life that you came to bring. So God, for those of us that, that are holding on to things that uh, we think will bring life, but actually don't, God, I pray that you would help us to loosen our hands. God, that you would give us the, the courage, the boldness, the, the self-awareness to let go of those things so that we can receive something better in you and who you are. 
And so, God, for each one of us, as we wrestle with these things this week, I I just want to ask that you would help, that your spirit would be with us. God, that you would encourage us where we need it, that you would challenge us where we need it. And God, that we would respond by hearing you, by listening to you and responding to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.